0: walking through a gift store, maybe the card aisle, you might find these words, God's mercies are new every morning. And behind these words, you'll also find a rather nice vacation spot, pleasant meadows, beautiful flowers, vibrant sunsets. A peaceful breakfast, much like this one. Or this one. Or even this one. Nothing wrong with these. They represent good gifts to be enjoyed. The problem comes when they lead us to forget the dark context in which these words came They weren't recalled at a picnic in the hundred-acre wood. They didn't come at a quiet breakfast table. They came in the face of unspeakable darkness. Lamentations is a response to the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. God's wrath turned against the people. He sent Babylon to destroy them. They starved the people, they ransacked the city, they burned the temple, and those who survived became slaves. To anybody on the ground, all hope seemed lost. A better backdrop would look something like this. You won't find that hanging on anybody's wall. But it's a more accurate representation Lamentations was written for people sitting in that sort of darkness. That's the context in which God's mercies are recalled. You might not be in a war zone, but perhaps darkness has settled around you relationally, and you're on the brink of losing hope. Perhaps you're facing the dark consequences of your sin, and and you've given up hope. Perhaps you watch the moral fabric of of nations and even churches unravel and you think, "This this is hopeless. This is going nowhere. Listen, God's mercies are for people sitting there in that hopeless ruin without escape. This whole book revolves around the centerpiece of God's steadfast love And mercies. Chapter 3 is what you might call the summit of the book. Lamentations contains five poems, and chapter 3 is the center one. And and like chapters 1 and 2, chapter 3 is also an acrostic. But he picks up the pace a little bit. Every verse begins with. Uh, he, does, he, he triples the acrostic pattern so that it's now A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 D, 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 and, and so forth. So the intensity is heightening in chapter 3. And then right when you think all hope is lost, God's new mercies pierce the dark clouds. The darkness remains... But the ray of hope shines. And that's where we're heading today. In chapter 1, the author uh, simply described Lady Zion from the outside looking in. Uh, In chapter 2, the author comes beside Lady Zion and advises her to to pray. Well, in chapter 3, though, the author himself becomes one with Lady Zion. He describes Zion's sufferings as his very own. But more than she's able to do, this man turns his mind to consider the Lord's mercy. You see, he wants Zion to follow him in considering the Lord's mercy. He wants her to hope again. And the more we draw near to this man, the more we're taught how to wait for the Lord's mercy While weeping in darkness, we'll only take the first half of chapter three today, and I'll break it into two parts hope perished and hope revived. Hope perished and hope revived, and then we're going to tease out a few implications. So, first, let's look at hope perished beneath the wrath of God. Hope perished beneath the wrath of God. This is verses 1 to 18. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones, He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. It made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. And So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. So has my hope from Yahweh. It's not until verse 18 that he mentions the Lord by name. But the Lord is the main actor throughout. The man experiences the rod of God's wrath. Remember, God's wrath is is the pure expression of God's holiness. It's not the work of a capricious God flying off the handle. The Lord's wrath is controlled by His character and used toward good ends, restoring the good, removing the evil. And at this point... That meant Israel suffered greatly under God's curse. God gave the people a covenant, blessings if they obeyed, curses if they rebelled. They broke the covenant and now the curses fall with devastating force. The man first compares God to a shepherd driving him away. Shepherds protect sheep, don't they? And when doing so, they used a rod and a staff. The rod amounted, you know, to a modified bat to drive the predators away. You're familiar with that image from Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But here in verse 1, God turns His rod against the people. Their rebellion, in other words, has turned them into predators. God must drive them away. When He does, God drives them into darkness without any light. They had no choice now. The dark clouds of Babylon's fury was upon them. And God made them walk into it. And then verse 3, what was normally the nurturing hand of the shepherd was now turned against the people all day long. Everywhere they went was turned against them. Then next he compares God to a master builder who walls them in, who walls him in. Verse 4 speaks of his flesh and skin wasting away. Well, that's because he's starving inside of a besieged city. Quite literally, Babylon built a siege around the city and the, the effects were awful. We noted in chapter 2 you know, that uh, the mothers were, were even driven by hunger to eat their children. And not just the physical armies surrounding them, but but the whole bitter experience walled him in. And so he says in verse 5, he besieged me with bitterness. verse 6 says, he made me dwell in darkness like the dead long ago. Meaning nothing has changed for those who died long ago. They're still dead. They're still forgotten. The grave has not let them go. And he's saying, I might as well be dead too. The problem is I'm still breathing and have to put up with death. I dwell there. I sleep in death. I wake up again with death all around me. There's no escaping it either. Verse 7 says, He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. Notice they are blocks of stones. Meaning they are carefully cut and crafted and intentionally set in place by God to block him off. Every exit he runs to is shut because he places the stones all he has is prayer, and that even gets shut out. He also compares God to a hunter pursuing his prey. Hosea 13 is actually helpful context here, uh, because God warned them before the exile happened. He warned them what would happen if they continued in their sins. and Hosea in 13 verses 48. He says, you know, that he explains that God saved Israel, that he, he gave them and he provided for them in the wilderness, and, and he, he gave them everything that they needed once he got once they got in the land, and then it says, But then they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion. I will fall upon them like a bear and tear their breasts open. God turned on them like a predator because they forgot Him. They abandoned God for the idols of the nations. And therefore, they had to suffer His judgment. Lamentations 3.10 is basically a fulfillment of sorts of Hosea's words. The warning came true. They didn't respond to it. And so now it says, he is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. Even more, he bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. Babylon fired the shots. But from God's perspective, Babylon was but an instrument in the Lord's hands. So what's the result for this man? It's it's absolute humiliation and hopelessness. Verse 14. I've become the laughingstock of all peoples. The the New American Standard version actually has the better translation here. I've become the laughingstock to all my peoples. To all my people. So the humiliation is worse than a bunch of pagan nations scoffing. His own people are laughing at him. This is the same guy trying to get the people to pray in chapter 2. And in just a moment, he'll encourage them to hope. But they're laughing at him like, what planet are you living on? You're insane to hope. Can't you see the brass shackles around our ankles as they haul us into slavery? The man thirsts for something different to ease his pain, but all the Lord gives him to drink is bitterness and wormwood, verse 15. Wormwood was a, a bitter herb. It's the oppo- this is the opposite of what God did for the people in Exodus 15 when He made the bitter water sweet. Deuteronomy 29 and Jeremiah, they indicate that God would would give bitter water as a punishment for idolatry. And it even gives a picture of the kind of heart he's talking about here the, the heart that says, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. I'm good. God doesn't care. He'll overlook this. He'll forgive me. I'll walk in the stubbornness of my heart and I'll be safe. And is saying, yeah, that ain't true. To follow the stubbornness of your heart isn't safe. It's deadly. God has given them bitterness and wormwood. Verse 16, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. This is utter humiliation. This is face shoved in the dirt. Verse 17, my soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. Some of your translations might have, I've forgotten what good, what goodness is. And so I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. So, this is rock bottom. There's nothing left. There's no peace. There's no blessing. There's no happiness over the bounty of God's favor. It's all gone. And why? Because of their sin. Because they wanted to do things their way. In verse 42, he'll say that they transgressed the covenant and rebelled. Sin made God their enemy. And as long as the Lord is your enemy, you have no hope. Doesn't Ephesians 2 teach us the same thing, that we were strangers to the covenants? We were without hope and without God in the world. When God is your enemy, hope perishes. Well, what then can anybody do? In such a hopeless ruin without escape, you know, where, where does one turn? The man can't look to himself. I mean, he's powerless. That's obvious. That's what got, uh, he, he can't run to the world, to the nations for help. That's what got him there to begin with. The man can't even run to his own people. They're in the same boat and they're laughing at him for trying to hope. His only hope is for the Lord to show mercy. And somehow, some way, the judge show mercy and pardon him. And so that's where he turns. Hope revives before the mercy of God. Hope revives now before the mercy of God. We're at the summit. Verse 19 could be an initial prayer. Uh, Remember, like he's talking to the Lord, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, or it could further describe his desperate state. To remember my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul, he goes on, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Layer upon layer of pain crushes his soul, but right in the middle of that pain, God's mercy gives birth to hope. Verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. He doesn't have hope because of his mental wherewithal. This is not the power of positive thinking. I'm going to will something in his existence. No. He has hope because of this. The emphasis is on this. Something outside himself. And here it is. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. What gives him hope? The steadfast love of the Lord. Even better, it's in the plural the steadfast loves of the Lord. Right? His love is kaleidoscopic in its expression toward His people. But let's focus further on this, on this word. Translations will use kindness, loving kindness. The ESV has steadfast love. This word is an important one throughout the Old Testament. It describes God's unwavering covenant commitment to glorify His mercy in saving a people when those very people can't offer anything in return. His unwavering covenant commitment to glorify His mercy in saving a people when those very people can't offer anything in return. Type in steadfast love to the computer or whatever. Get out your concordance, look them all up where this word occurs and this is, you'll draw a conclusion similar to what I've drawn here. Now to see the beauty of this steadfast love, we're going to zoom out for a minute and I'll explain how it came together for me and then you can test it, but since Mount Sinai okay, where God gives them the, the law, since Mount Sinai the people are under what's called the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, the blessings of that covenant were conditional on their obedience to the covenant. So if they broke the covenant, they had to endure the curses. Well, on multiple occasions, right, Israel breaks the covenant. You get explicit examples like the golden calf, like right after the law is given, right? The golden calf, they break it again when the spies come back and say, Hey, let's, let's, uh, let's not go into the promised land. These guys are scary. And they listen. and So you get these occasions where they, they, they break the Mosaic Covenant. And what's interesting, though, is that when they break the covenant, the faithful, so like Moses for the nation, or even David for himself the faithful would ask the Lord to forgive them according to His steadfast love. This is what they're appealing to constantly, even though they're under the Mosaic Covenant, they're appealing to His steadfast love. Or whenever God Himself renews the covenant with them, it's always based on, not their goodness, but on His steadfast love. Okay, so that made me wonder, okay, when they appeal to God's steadfast love, are they appealing to a commitment that God made that stands above the Mosaic Covenant? Was there a commitment God made to save a people prior to the Mosaic Covenant, and on the basis of that unwavering covenant, commitment, They're hoping for their forgiveness. Does that happen anywhere? And the answer is yes. And Deuteronomy 7 helped me connect the dots. The Lord explains to Israel, another place where you'll find him talking about his steadfast love, but he's explaining to Israel that he did not choose them because they were so great. He loved them simply because he chose to love them. And because he was committed to the oath he made with the fathers, meaning Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay, that right there with Abraham is where God made an unwavering commitment to glorify his mercy. In saving a people for himself when those very people couldn't offer anything in return, how do we know that they could not offer him anything in return? Enter the Mosaic Covenant. And fail, renewal, and fail, renewal, and fail, renewal, and fail, renewal, and exile. They can't offer anything. And the man in Lamentations knows it. He knows they deserve God's wrath. How then can they be saved? Through the covenant he made with Abraham. That one is based wholly on God's grace and not works. It's based wholly on God's, God's unwavering commitment to glorify his mercy in saving a people. And how committed was he to that covenant? Oh, So committed that if the people themselves couldn't hold up their end of the covenant, then God himself would come and fulfill it for them. More than that, he would take on himself the punishment they deserved for breaking the covenant. Right? That's why he passed the, the flaming torch, passes through the sacrifices Right when he makes the covenant with Abraham. I'm going to fulfill this thing. I'll take death on myself if it has to, to make this covenant happen. And all this was to ensure that all the families of the earth would be blessed in Abraham's offspring. And so this steadfast love has a rich history to it. When you see the faithful throughout Scripture leaning on God's steadfast love as their only hope, they know they've got nothing to offer God in return. Their only hope is that He glorify His mercy in saving them. But this steadfast love doesn't just have a history, it has a future. It climaxes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we find the full revelation of God's steadfast love. Right? In Jesus, we find God becoming man to fulfill what we couldn't keep. In Jesus, we find God the Son taking on Himself the punishment that we deserved. In Jesus, we find not the old covenant renewed once again. No, we find the old covenant fulfilled and an even better covenant that surpassed the old. It's a new covenant, and that new covenant can't be broken. You know why? Because Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus is the new covenant, and he doesn't fail. And if you're united to him, guess what you get? All the blessings of the new covenant. You know what happens under the New Covenant? A divine reversal of the curses we just read about in Lamentations. Here in Lamentations 3, right? God's curse was likened to a shepherd driving the people away. But in Christ, He says, I give my sheep eternal life, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. Here, God's curse forced them to walk in darkness, but in Christ, we've been saved from the darkness and brought into God's marvelous light. Here, the man has no peace, but in Christ, we gain peace by the blood of his cross. Here, the man has no home. He's a wanderer, but in Christ, we're made part of God's household. We have an eternal home. So the gospel of Jesus proves that this man of Lamentations 3 didn't hope in vain. His hope was realized in the person of Jesus. And there's more to come with the new heavens and the new earth. That's why it says steadfast loves in verse 22. They are many And more than that, they never cease. Why? Because God never ceases to exist. They're bound up with His character. As long as He lives, He's committed to pouring out His love on His people. His mercies never come to an end for them. They are new every morning. Circumstances will fluctuate. Sufferings will come and go. Sometimes sufferings will come and stay. But for His people, God remains totally committed to saving them. His love toward them never changes. Great is His faithfulness. Think about that comment that He makes. Great is your faithfulness in the midst of spending the last two and a half chapters describing the wrath of God falling on the people. Great is your faithfulness both in judgment and in salvation. if God was faithful to His Word in judging the people, He's going to be faithful to His Word to Abraham to save His people. Now, we know this full of revelation in Jesus Christ. This man did not. But, what, but he clung to what he did know of it. In fact, he clung to it so much that God himself became his portion. He says, The Lord is my portion. He didn't need the dark circumstances to change in order for him to have hope. For so many people, hard times hit and they spend every waking moment trying to change their circumstances to produce hope, and they find hope constantly fleeting from them. Where was his hope? In the Lord himself. He is constant in love and unwavering in His commitment to save His people. And then He he then moves to explain the Lord's goodness further. As well as how they should respond. You know, God's steadfast love is awesome, but but it wasn't like the darkness was going to suddenly lift for them. It's not like by recalling this, everything's going to get better. It's not. Even if God brought them straight back into the land immediately... There's devastation everywhere. And so the next few lines teach them how to respond while they wait for God's mercy to come in its fullness. Verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. So what should their response be? Wait before the Lord in a posture of humility. Trust that his purpose is ultimately good. He's thankful that some of them are younger. It's better to enter the rough days of exile as a young person. And he's telling the young people don't miss these lessons here. Don't miss this judgment and what the Lord is teaching his people through this. There's a purpose to these sufferings, in other words. Sit alone in silence, he says in verse 28. Not absolute silence. I mean, the whole book is teaching them how to lament. But once you've cried out, once you've poured out your heart before the Lord, learn to sit and wait patiently for Him to act. Verse 29 describes that posture of humility. Verse 30 then takes it even further and says, Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. He's talking about the Lord striking. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Meaning the exile isn't in vain. It's not pointless suffering. God is at work in and through it. He disciplines his people there. They must learn to receive the pain from his hand. Charles Spurgeon once said, Let me learn to kiss the wave. That throws me against the rock of ages. That's what's going on here. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Even in the pain, he's trustworthy and good. And that's where verses 31 to 33 enter the picture. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love, for He does not afflict from His heart or grieve the children of men. So, He causes grief in the sense that He stands behind it. That's verse 32. But it's temporary. He will have compassion. And when the pain comes... He's saying, know that God does not afflict or grieve you from His heart. Some of your translations say willingly. Literally, it's from His heart. Meaning, God, don't don't think God is some bloodthirsty sadist when you endure these things. He's not up there scheming and getting His pleasure from afflicting His people. rather he is good to those who wait for him his affliction has a good purpose to cause his people to return to him and we'll talk more about that next week today I just want to close with a a few implications number one you have no hope without God's steadfast love in Jesus Christ trust in him The first 18 verses paint a clear picture. God's wrath is all-consuming. He wrecks people caught in their sins. He closes in on you on every side. He will not allow you to escape. And He will do this until your hope perishes. He may even be wrecking some of you right now. You've hit rock bottom. You can't see up. If you don't turn to God's steadfast love in Jesus Christ you will perish without hope but if you trust in the Lord's steadfast love if you cherish Jesus and what God has done for you in Jesus Christ there is an abundance of hope to be had the forgiveness of your sins the cleansing of a guilty conscience God becomes your father The Holy Spirit becomes your guarantee of eternal life. The kingdom becomes your inheritance. The resurrection becomes your hope. Look at these people here. These were covenant breakers just like you and me. And yet they appeal to God's steadfast love, which says no human wrong is beyond God's mercy where true repentance exists. And that's good news. No human wrong is beyond God's mercy where true repentance exists. So turn from your sin into the Lord Jesus, and you will find yourself a good father in God. He abounds in steadfast love and mercy, and he will be one who is committed wholly to your hope. Number two. In Christ, hope is always possible, even in the darkest of circumstances. Hope is always possible. Maybe you think you've strayed too far into sin. Maybe your life is is filled with darkness. Sin wrecked your family. Uh, Maybe you have hurt people deeply. Maybe a spouse has been unfaithful and, and, you, and has sent you reeling. Maybe you've seen the rapid moral decline in our nation and that increasing darkness frightens you for the coming generations. Maybe you're in a place like the family I read about earlier this week. and All the children were playing with their daddy in the ocean in a wave took the dad down and, and his, rock hit his, uh, uh, his head hit against the rock and the Lord took him. While well, he's playing in the waves. Hope is still possible there. Why? Because God's steadfast love never ceases. He is unwaveringly committed to glorifying His mercy in your life. Lamentations exist to help us trust this God in the darkness, to trust His heart when we cannot trace His hand, as someone once said. It teaches us how to wait and learn and submit to His good purposes even in pain. God meets His people there in the darkness to bring us hope. Just look at the cross again. There's no greater darkness than the darkness that Jesus knew at the cross. He suffered the rod of God's wrath like no other. All our sin upon His shoulders, He lamented like no other. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet in and through it, God the Father remained faithful to him. He raised him from the dead three days later, vindicating his glory and securing your hope. That's why hope is possible. Indeed, it's not just possible, it's guaranteed for God's people. Christ died. That's the darkness. But Christ is risen. And Christ will come again to bring us into the new heavens and the new earth. And even more, Christ, that One who went through that darkness, is with you now in yours to help you walk that. He endured great hostility from sinners in order that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Number three, learn to lament. Be honest about the darkness while recalling the good news of God's mercy. This man doesn't shy away from acknowledging sin. He's very real about how awful things are. I mean, he doesn't ignore reality. He processes his despair even before the Lord. My endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. My soul is bowed down within me. He doesn't even ignore the Lord's hand of judgment. He knows God is behind it. But he doesn't stop there. Many people stop there at the despair. And they wallow in self-pity. And some get so used to the darkness they stop trying altogether. Some miss the fullness of God's character by doing so. they, They only see wrath. And they do not see his steadfast love. But this man rehearses the good news of God's mercy. The fullness of his character. This I call to mind, he says. The Hebrew has, I cause this to return to my heart. You've taken that truth? Get in my heart. We have to be disciplined thinkers in the darkness. This man does what we see David doing in, this, in his laments, right? Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you downcast? Hope in God preaches back to himself. He argues with himself. Sometimes the darkness will cause us to say things like, it's just hopeless, nothing can change, I'm stuck. But we've got to argue back. We've got to make concerted efforts to recall the good news of God's mercies. And when you see a brother or a sister too weak to recall those mercies for themselves, that's when you need to do what this man's doing and go sit with them and help them remember his mercies. Go sit with Zion in her pain and then walk her up to the summit of God's never-ending love. They're new every morning, these mercies. Everything we need to walk through the darkness, to wait upon the Lord, He will give to us. Morning by morning, new mercies he will give. Including the best and most hope giving gift of all, the gift of himself. Which leads us to one other implication here. Verse 23, uh, we see it. True hope isn't determined by our circumstances, but by the Lord becoming our portion. Kind of like the Lord was the priest's portion, right? They didn't get any land. Like the rest of the people, the Lord was their portion. He's using that language to talk about Himself right here. In verse 23, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will, have, I will hope in Him. So this God who abounds in steadfast love for His people, that's unwaveringly committed to showing mercy to His people, that God is His portion. And therefore He has hope hope will not last for you if your trust is in your financial freedom. Hope will not last if your trust is in a perfect marriage or in your dream career or in a healthy immune system or even in your local church. In our culture, so many people are jaded and depressed and anxious and apathetic right now, the Lord needs to become their portion. When you have the Lord, you have everything. He is more than enough. The only hope that lasts, is the one that's bound up with God, whose love is forever. Church, the Lord has given us a sign pointing to His never-ending mercies here at the Lord's Supper is perfect opportunity to make the Lord your portion once again. To have Him is to have all you need. To have Him is to to be reassured of His unwavering covenant commitment to glorify His mercy in saving you. This table says He did that at the cost of His only Son. So let's come and celebrate what he's accomplished for us in his steadfast love. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.